Tonight is our Q&A night, as you know, and I received a whole slew of questions, uh, including a few which I provided answers to in other formats and a few others that I'm leaving out with the questioner's permission. Uh, but even with those questions to one side, I still have more questions tonight than I can handle in the normal fashion. So a couple of strategies tonight. Uh, one, I'm going to try and answer nearly all of these questions uh, quite briefly, and some of them very briefly. Uh, and second, I'm going to forego the usual opportunity that I give for follow-up questions in between because I want to get to all the questions, and I also want to honor your time. So don't be alarmed when I tell you I have nine questions in front of me. I think you'll be surprised at how fast we will get through them. I know roughly how many pages worth of notes will fit into a reasonable amount of time, and I've limited myself as to what I put on the page so as to finish on time. And if you have follow-up questions uh, or wish that I would, gone, would have gone into more detail on a question you asked, just catch me afterwards tonight or on Sunday or an email, and we can go further into any of these questions that you may need to. So then, a brief word of Scripture from 2 Timothy three sixteen. Uh, and then a brief word of prayer as we begin. 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So Father, tonight, uh, help us to be in the scripture, uh, even as we move here and there, or even just reference certain passages. I uh, pray that what is taught and what is given in answer to these questions will be from the scriptures and that it will be profitable to us in all the ways that you speak of here in 2 Timothy 3. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Nine questions. Number one, what happened to Timothy's father? What happened to Timothy's father? That's a good question because we've talked so much in recent weeks about the godly impact of Timothy's mother and even of his grandmother, but we've said very little at all about Timothy's father. And the reasons for that are that we just don't know very much about Timothy's father, and also that Timothy's father doesn't seem to have made the same sort of spiritual impact on his life that his mother Eunice did. The one time Timothy's father is mentioned in the scriptures is in Acts 16, verses 1 through 3, and you can turn there with me now if you will. This is the one place where Timothy's father is mentioned, Acts 16, when Paul recruited Timothy to the mission field, and when we are told that while Timothy's mother was a Jewish Christian, yet his father was a Greek. Just look at verses 1 and 3 with me. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And then verse 3, Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, the simple fact that Timothy's father was a Greek, that he was not Jewish, is not an indication by itself that he was not a Christian, because there were Gentile Christians as well as Jewish ones. But... Since Timothy's mother is spoken of not only as being ethnically Jewish, but specifically as a Christian believer there in verse 1, and since Timothy's father is not spoken of in that way in this passage, 
And since he's not listed in 2 Timothy 1, alongside his wife and his mother-in-law and his son, who were believers, it's quite likely that Timothy's father was an unbeliever, and that this is why Paul speaks in 2 Timothy 1 of Timothy's mother's influence and of his grandmother's influence, but not of his father's influence. Also, the commentator I. Howard Marshall suggests, based on the Greek verb tense, here in verse 3, that Timothy's father was quite possibly deceased by the time Paul signed him up as a missionary partner there in Acts 16. And that's about as far as we can go in our knowledge of Timothy's father. He was a Greek. Likely he was an unbeliever who therefore didn't have the spiritual impact on his son that his wife Eunice did, and quite possibly he was deceased while Timothy was still young. And as for how Timothy's Jewish mother could have been married to an unbelieving Gentile, we have here a reminder that even this godly woman seems to have made a significant mistake in this regard, and yet we also have a reminder in Timothy's story that God overruled for good in her life and in the life of her son. So that's the question about Timothy's father. Another question, I think, related to our recent sermons on the family, number two, A child writes, I really love my parents, but I know sometimes I give the impression that I don't because my greatest sin is speaking to them in a disrespectful tone of voice. What should I do? I really love my parents, but sometimes I give the impression that I don't love them because my greatest sin is speaking to them in a disrespectful tone of voice. What should I do? That's another very good question. It's one that I'm sure many of us, even adults, can relate to. Let me give a three-part answer uh, that will help all of us as we seek to honor our parents. The first is when you fail in this way, when you're disrespectful to your parents, in other words, always make sure, first of all, that you confess that sin to the Lord and that you believe in the blood of Jesus shed for sinners and that you ask God to help you do differently, remembering that you need God's forgiveness even more than you need that of your parents and remembering that only God can help you do differently. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then second, in addition to turning to the Lord in such cases, make sure that you turn to your parents and admit that you were wrong, preferably even before they have to correct you, and say that you're sorry and ask their forgiveness and remind them that even though you know that the words you just spoke were unloving, that you really do love them and you really do want to honor them and ask them to pray with you for God's forgiveness and help. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. James 5.16 And then third, in addition to taking this to the Lord and taking it to your parents, third, realize that your parents, even when you're unloving, probably don't really think that you don't love them in general. They might be hurt. They may have to discipline you, but they're sinners too, and they know how crooked all of our hearts really are. And so while it doesn't make your sin any less serious, your parents do understand your sin, children, and they do understand that your unlove in one moment doesn't mean unlove in the rest of your life. And so you can rest easy, not about your sin, but about what your parents think of you because of it. They love you even more than you love them. And that's true of our Heavenly Father too, isn't it? 
He loves us more than we love Him, so much that He sent His own Son to die for us. And He knows our sin nature too, not by experience like our parents, but simply because He is God. And since He knows our sin nature, He knows how even those who really do love Him can so often act unlovingly toward Him, which we all do every time we sin. And He's merciful. And your parents who know him will be merciful too. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Psalm 103. Number three. Still related to our Sunday morning sermons. What is the difference between complementarianism and egalitarianism, and how does appropriating one view or the other impact the home and society at large? Complementarianism and egalitarianism. Let's, let's define those first. You can get fuller definitions on the website of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, cbmw.org, but let me give something to you briefly. Complementarianism, these are, are words that have to do with gender roles, Complementarianism is the view, which we would call the biblical view, that while men and women are equal in terms of their value, both having been created in God's image, yet by God's good design they are different and complementary in terms of their biblically defined roles. Let me say that again. Complementarianism is that men and women are equal in terms of their value because they've been created in the image of God, and yet by God's design they're different and complementary in terms of their biblically defined roles. Their roles are not the same, they complement one another. On the other hand, what's called egalitarianism asserts, in its Christian form anyway, that male and female role distinctions were a result of the fall. And that in Christ, men and women are not only equal in value, but that their roles can be interchangeable as well in the church and in the home. And then there's, of course, an even more militant form of egalitarianism in the unbelieving world that makes no appeal to the fall or the gospel or the scriptures, but that's just doing what is right in its own eyes, and which asserts very few differences between the roles of men and women at all. And then the question is, how does this impact the home and the culture? Since I'm trying to be brief, and since I've been preaching about what can go right when men and women fulfill their God-given complementary roles on Sunday mornings, tonight I'm just going to give you some bullet points about what can go wrong when biblical distinctions between male and female are dropped, either by secularists or even by well-meaning Christians. And since I'm trying to be brief, I must also, of necessity, paint with a broad brush, which means that not everything I'm going to say can go wrong necessarily always does go wrong in a given family or culture, and I hope you'll hear that well. But here are some potential pitfalls of appropriating the view that male and female roles are interchangeable. The second of these bullet points I'm going to borrow from Mary Cassian in an article she wrote, Alpha Women and Beta Boys at ReviveOurHearts.com. What can go wrong? First, listless husbands and dads who, despite their philosophical acceptance of the egalitarian viewpoint, may nevertheless have this innate sense that they ought to be the man of the house in good and honorable ways 
but who are frustrated in their attempts to do that because of the philosophy that they've adopted as their family's norm. Second, and here's the one I'm borrowing from Mary Cassian, career women who are also secretly unsatisfied because they too may have this innate sense that either they're not doing right by their children or that their husband's not measuring up because they are just as powerful as he is or make just as much or more money than he does. Also, children who grew up partially without the motherly nurture that the Bible portrays because mom's pursuing her career like a man instead of pursuing her family like a woman. And therefore, also, as the generations go on, you end up with a culture where you have more and more aggressive and forward women who had no First Peter 3 example in their own childhood of a gentle, quiet womanhood, and so they don't know how to live it out in their own lives. Churches with failing male leadership is another upshot. Nations and states with women as their leaders, which Isaiah mentions in his third chapter as a sign of a people who've gone astray. Women in combat, which ought to be unthinkable, it seems to me. And when the more militant forms of egalitarianism have erased the distinction between male and female roles, eventually you come up with a culture in which male and female identity themselves come into question. So that, I don't know if you can imagine this, but eventually they'll be saying boys can use the girls' restroom. And men can dress up like women and be on the front of a magazine and be applauded for it. And the government will pay for its soldiers to have sex reassignment surgery and so on. Strange things, I know. But this is what happens when we throw out the biblical distinctions between male and female. Number four. In Luke 4.41, is Jesus rebuking the people or the demons? So turn with me to Luke 4. And we'll look at the passage in question, verses 40 and 41, Luke 4, 40 and 41. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God! But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak, because they knew him to be the Christ. And the question is, in verse 41, is Jesus rebuking the demons themselves or is he rebuking the people out of whom the demons came? The answer is he's almost certainly rebuking the demons. And we can tell that because the specific rebuke in the latter half of verse 41 is connected with their being forbidden to speak. And who was doing the speaking in the first half of the verse? What is the subject of the first sentence in verse 41? It's not the many, it's not the people, in other words, out of whom the demons came, but rather it's the demons who were coming out of them and who were shouting, you are the Son of God. The demons knew who Jesus was and they were shouting his identity, but it was not yet time for Jesus' identity to be so publicly revealed. And so Jesus rebuked the demons who were announcing that identity and forbade them speaking any longer. And this is a reminder, just as we think for a brief minute about application, this is a reminder that Jesus has full authority over the evil spirits. He has authority not only to rebuke them, which he does here, but also to command them what they shall do, which he also does here. 
It may be that the questioner had something more in mind with that question than I realized or answered. And so if that was your question, catch me afterwards and follow up with me about what it is that I may have uh, overlooked. But for now, uh, we'll go on to number five. Moving from the demons to Satan himself. Can we say that Satan is omnipresent, which means present everywhere at once, since he is a spirit and contempt so many at a time? Can we say that Satan is omnipresent since he is a spirit and contempt so many at a time? And the answer to that question is a clear and resounding no. Nowhere is Satan spoken of in the Bible as being everywhere present. God is spoken of in that way, for instance, in Psalm 139 or in Jeremiah 23, 24, where he says, do I not fill the heavens and the earth? But nowhere do we have a statement like that about the evil one. And indeed, just because Satan is a spirit doesn't entail omnipresence either because the angels are spirits and so are the human beings who are now in heaven, Hebrews 12, 23, but they're not omnipresent. So being a spirit does not entail omnipresence. Those are two separate attributes. And we can't really say either that Satan can tempt many people at once unless we're thinking of a group of people who are all in one place. His minions, the demons, are fanned out all over the earth doing Satan's bidding perhaps and tempting all sorts of different people in different places at the same time. But that's not the same as Satan himself being there in all those places. He's not omnipresent. But all this brings up a very interesting point, and that is that we must be careful of a tendency that is easy to fall into, which is to think of Satan as a kind of evil near equivalent to God, as though there were two great powers in the world, one slightly stronger than the other, but both having very similar characteristics. Not so. Satan is a created being. Fallen into darkness, yes, opposed to God, to be sure, powerful, without a doubt, but he's not an alternate God. Indeed, as a created being, he's far inferior, powerful angel that he may be, he is far inferior to the one he made, who made him. You can see that in Job 1 and in Luke 22, where he has to get permission from God before he can attack Or you can see it in Revelation 20 where Satan will finally be destroyed. Not in some epic battle with Jesus, not in some lightsaber duel that could turn out either way. Satan is destroyed rather by simply being plucked up off of the earth and tossed into the lake of fire. So that the great final war which he seeks to make against the Lord will end before it ever begins. In fact, just just read that with me over in Revelation 20. Verses 7 through 10, the great final war that isn't. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Now you're expecting a great battle scene, right? that would fit on the silver screen, but read what happens next. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever 
and ever. There's no great war at the end. God is not making war here with an arch enemy who is very nearly like him and almost as powerful. He is making war with one who he created and whom he can pluck up and will pluck up like a man scooping up a cockroach in his garage and flushing it down the commode. Satan is not omnipresent and he's not anywhere near what God is. And all that brings us to our next question, number six. Why does God allow Satan any power at all? Why does God allow Satan any power at all? If it's not that Satan is a power in and of himself, which power God must always work to contain, if Satan is a created being who can only do what God allows him to do, why does God allow him any power at all? Well, here's a question that the Bible just doesn't answer. We're not told why God allowed Satan to fall or why he created such a being knowing that he would fall or why having fallen, God allows him any power. None of that is answered for us in the Bible. But the one thing we do know for sure, as the questioner said, and as I just mentioned from Job 1 and from Luke 22, is that it is God who allows Satan power and not Satan who has it in and of himself or who takes it for himself. But beyond that, we can't speak with any degree of certainty. However, on a slightly different track, one thing we do know about God, and I'll come back around to Satan in a minute, but one thing we do know about God is that although he could save every human being from the wrath that their sins deserve, he does not do so. And Paul suggests in Romans 9, 22 and 23 that the reason he does not do so is because the contrast between the lost and the saved, between the redeemed and the damned, demonstrates that there is such a thing as mercy. If everyone was damned, there would be no mercy. And if no one was damned, mercy wouldn't appear very merciful. It would just appear normal. And so... Paul is saying in Romans 9, God created a world and is unfolding a gospel plan in which some people will be damned so that there is a contrast that enables us to appreciate his mercy when we are not. And maybe, not certainly, but maybe the power that God allows to Satan has a similar reasoning behind it. By allowing Satan to do what he does, to be a menace and a prince in the world, Perhaps God is allowing a contrast that enables us to see how much better God himself is as king and father and master and the one to whom we pledge our allegiance. But that, as I say, is just me taking a stab, really, at a question the Bible doesn't really explain and over which we must, at the end of the day, simply trust the wisdom of God whose ways, Romans 11, are ultimately unfathomable. Number seven, does the Bible say that once we're in heaven, God will let us look down into hell once a month? Does the Bible say that once we're in heaven, God will let us look down into hell once a month? I try to look up and see if there was some uh, maybe religion that teaches that, and I'm not sure. Um, But the answer is that the Bible does not say that. In fact, the Bible doesn't tell us a great deal about what we may or may not see outside of heaven once we're on the inside. 
Sometimes we talk sentimentally about our loved ones in heaven looking down on us, and maybe they are, maybe they aren't. The Bible doesn't really say. Hebrews 12 speaks about us running the Christian race surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And some have taken that to mean, and I in the past have preached it as meaning that the faith heroes in Hebrews 11 are looking down upon us, witnessing what we do as we live out our own faith. But I now believe, rather, that what's going on in Hebrews 12 is that the witness of the faith heroes is a reference not to them witnessing our faith as observers, but that the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12.1 is speaking about the way their faith witnesses to us as we run the race and read their stories in places like Hebrews 11. And so it doesn't appear that he's saying there that that the saints of old are looking down on us, and we can't build any sort of comprehensive doctrine from Hebrews 12 or from any other passage, I don't think, about all that those in heaven may or may not see outside of heaven. And there's certainly no reference to regular glimpses of hell. Luke 16 references one instance of communication between heaven and hell, but that's just one instance between just two men, and we can't build any sort of regulative doctrine on that either. So we have to be content not knowing what all we may be able to see or not see of the outside world from the vantage point of heaven. And I think instead we have to focus our attention on what the Bible says that we will see inside heaven, namely him whom our souls love, Jesus. I don't know what we will see out of heaven's windows, as it were, but I know that the main thing we will want to see will be on the inside of heaven. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Number eight, are there such things as guardian angels, and could a human being possibly be one? The answer to the second question is no. Despite the imaginations of Hollywood, human beings are not sent back to earth after we die and human beings do not become angels at any point. Hebrews 2 speaks about mankind on earth as for a little while lower than the angels. 1 Corinthians 6 speaks of us, most likely in the future, judging angels. Revelation 4 shows humans in heaven worshiping with the angels, but never do we read about humans becoming angels, and so we shouldn't look for that. When we die, we will be busy at God's throne worshiping Christ rather than serving him on earth as someone else's guardian angel. But are there guardian angels at all? Maybe. The Bible certainly speaks of the angels in Hebrews 2 as ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. And the Bible certainly gives us examples of angels doing just that, moving around on the earth, helping God's people. And I have no doubt that they've been doing that for us even this week, even if we haven't been aware of it. And so the angels certainly do, among other things, function as guardians. But when we use the term guardian angels, I think we're usually thinking about each person or maybe certain people having a particular angel assigned to them who is always following them around and intervening on their behalf or at least watching them always particularly from heaven and being assigned specifically to them. And it's certainly possible that that is the case, although I think our 
vision of such a thing probably comes as much from Hollywood and from folk tales as it does from the Bible, because the Bible doesn't really speak about guardian angels in the way that we're accustomed to think of them. There's one passage in Matthew 18.10 where Jesus, speaking about children, says, quote, Their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father. Their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father. And we might read that verse and conclude at least that maybe children have guardian angels. But the question is, is that referring to each child having an assigned angel? Or is Jesus simply saying that God has angels whose specific job is to watch over children in general? We don't know for sure. And, of course, the verse says nothing about angels assigned specifically to particular adults. And so we can't build a theology of guardian angels on that one verse of Scripture that doesn't give us a great deal of detail. And so I conclude that better than being certain whether there are or not what we would call guardian angels is simply to know that there are angels, and that they minister to people, Hebrews 2, and that whether I have a specific one assigned to me or not, God will send one or many angels to my rescue whenever he sees that I need it. And best of all, as we were saying earlier, God himself is omnipresent. God is everywhere at once, even if you don't have an angel next to you. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me so that I have God's help personally any and every time I need it. As the psalmist put it in Psalm 121, the Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Number nine and last, was Jesus tempted by addictions? Someone I know has an addiction. How can I help them as they try to fight it? The answer to the first question is not as straightforward as it might seem, because while it's true that Jesus was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15, yet addiction is an interesting phenomenon that requires us to take great care when we speak about it and make sure we understand what we're saying. Because if I surmise correctly, I'm not an expert by any stretch, but if I surmise correctly, most addicts are not tempted to become addicts per se. They're not tempted by addiction itself. They're tempted by the things to which they are or might become addicted. Drugs, alcohol, video games, pornography, gambling, etc., They're not tempted by addiction, but by things to which they might be addicted. And then when they give in to those things, to the point of actual addiction, then they are also tempted toward what we might call addictive behaviors, like the lying and stealing and so on that addicts often engage in in order to feed or hide their addiction. So I'm not really sure we can talk about being tempted specifically to addiction itself, although we can certainly talk about the lure of certain substances and behaviors that can become addictive, and we can talk about the temptation toward addictive behaviors once we become addicted. But where does Jesus fit in in all of this? Well, surely Hebrews 4.15 would indicate that Jesus was presented with opportunities to give himself to things that could have become addictive, surely Jesus saw gambling and alcoholic indulgence and so on. But 
Jesus was certainly never in the midst of an addiction such that he would have been tempted to lie or steal in order to feed his addiction. Addictive behaviors follow addiction, and so it doesn't seem like Jesus, who was not addicted, would have been tempted with addictive behaviors like lying and stealing to feed or cover up an addiction. But surely Hebrews 4.15 means that he was tempted to lie or steal or to let other people down, although not for reasons of addiction. And I was looking at a page today entitled, What Does the Bible Say About Addiction? It was on openbible.info. I don't know anything about that site, so I don't know if it's a good site. But they had a page, What Does the Bible Say About Addiction? And it listed a whole large collection of verses that we could turn to to help us think about addiction biblically. And here's the significant thing. Matthew 4 was on the list. That passage, you remember, where Jesus was in the wilderness and he was hungry and his body was crying out for this substance, bread, and where Satan used that physical crying out of his body to try and get him to sin, to try and get him to satisfy this craving wrongly. And so while we can't say that Jesus was tempted from within the web, the tangled web of addiction, which is usually what we mean when we speak of someone being tempted by addiction, they're already an addict, in other words. Though Jesus wasn't tempted as an addict, he was tempted in all the ways that an addict is, it seems to me, right down to Satan's use of his intense physical craving, yet without sin. And so that story from Matthew 4 might be one thing I would share with a friend who is an addict. Jesus, not because of an addiction, but because of his humanity, knows what it is to have your body aching for a quick fix, Matthew 4, and yet he also demonstrates in that passage that because we do not live by bread or any other earthly substance alone, because Jesus could live without bread for 40 days, in other words, surely we can live without those addictive substances or behaviors that we think we cannot live without if we will live instead like Jesus on the word of God. So I would tell my addictive friend to look to the example of Jesus and to live on God's word rather than on their substance or behavior that is addictive, I would tell them not only to look to Christ's example, but to look to his cross where the chains of bondage are broken. I'd tell them to get in a good church where there would be regular accountability and to receive that accountability gladly. I would encourage them to be honest with those to whom they're accountable and not play games when they're asked direct questions. I would encourage them to get into a long-term program led by Christian people who understand the Bible and who understand the physiological aspects of addiction and to listen to those people and to stay with the program as long as their counselors think is necessary. And then I would encourage you, their friend or their family member, to be in it for the long haul to expect that victory won't come overnight or even over a week's detox, but to be committed to a long process and to ups and downs and to a lot of waiting and seeing. As for specific Bible passages that you could take them to, 
web pages like the one I mentioned a few moments ago that gather together a great number of verses that would help them think through their addiction biblically could be helpful. But I also believe that our addicted friends desperately need not only just the verses specifically geared toward their addiction, but they just need a regular diet of reading through books of the Bible and of the regular preaching of the Word of God so that they're not just taking the Bible like pills or shots against their addiction, but also like the food which is necessary every day for us to be overall spiritually healthy. So one huge way you might help your addicted friend not being the counselor or the one who knows a great deal about this situation and the trouble, one way you might help them would would be, yes, to put them in front of an experienced counselor who can give them the spiritual shots and pills that you may not know where to find, but also to do all you can to help them to be regularly in the house of God, maybe to offer simply to study the Bible with them once a week or more than that, so that they learn what Jesus said in Matthew 4, which is that we live by the word of God.